Hey guys, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. This is 1984 by George Orwell. This is episode two, and we are covering the rest of the book from part two, chapter six, all the way to the end, and going over themes. Now, I'm going to ask you guys to do me a favor before you listen, go or while you're listening, I guess, give me a review however many stars you want, and write a review. It really helps me get higher on the list of podcasts, so that would be awesome if you could do that for me. Chapter 6. O'Brien finally meets Winston in the hallway one day and discreetly starts a conversation with him about the new Newspeak Dictionary. While they're talking, indirectly references Syme's disappearance, This is proof to Winston that O'Brien and he share the same double-think, that they have the same ideas, because for him to even allude to the fact that Syme at one point existed is kind of like defying the party, because he's been vaporized. So the fact that O'Brien is mentioning him is the sort of, you know, I'm with you type of thing to Winston. So he makes them accomplices. And O'Brien invites Winston over to his house because he has a copy of the new Newspeak Dictionary and Winston is wanting a copy, whatever. It's basically a front for O'Brien to give Winston his address in a way that's not weird. Winston accepts and he, in his mind, realizes that this is O'Brien inviting him into the Brotherhood. Although this is incredibly dangerous, Winston believes that if O'Brien is setting a trap for Winston to commit thought crime, he would at least be acting in his desires. So he's decided to go to O'Brien's house and see what it's all about. Chapter 7. Winston wakes up next to Julia. He's been crying. He was dreaming about memories of his mother. His memories include his mother and sister constantly moving, his mother losing hope after his father disappeared, they didn't have enough food, And the lack of food often made young Winston lash out at his mother and beg for more. And he would often take larger portions or steal portions of food from the shelves. And one day, a chocolate ration was issued. And instead of evenly dividing it between the family, Winston stole his sister's piece and ran away. When he came back to the house, the rest of the family had disappeared and he never saw them again. And as Winston describes the story... To Julia, she seems to miss the point, saying, I accept you were a beastly little swine in those days, and then falls back to sleep. Winston thinks about how his mother was different, how she had individual personal feelings that she acted upon separate from the political party. It says on 165, They were governed by private loyalties, which they did not question. What mattered were individual relationships, a completely helpless gesture, an embrace, a tear, a word spoken to a dying man could have value in itself. Winston suddenly admires the proles because they had stayed human and he and Julia talk about what they should do next because he knows what they're doing right now will not last and Julia agrees to do whatever Winston wants to do and Winston wants them to never betray their feelings for each other even if it means death. He decides that no matter how much surveillance and propaganda the party puts on you, as long as you have personal feelings and desire, you have beaten them. 
and Julia agrees. So to defeat the party was to desire to be human with individual thoughts and feelings. The one thing the party couldn't do was get inside your head and hear your thoughts. Chapter 8. So despite the danger, Winston and Julia finally go visit O'Brien at his house. Winston describes how lush the quality of everything was in the inner party. They had tobacco, they had roads and houses, appliances, servants. It's incredibly intimidating. And so they knock on O'Brien's door. A servant lets them in. They see O'Brien at his desk. He's finishing a task. And when he does, he walks calmly over to the telescreen in the room and turns it off. This obviously shocks Julia and Winston, but members of the inner party are allowed to turn off their telescreens. And O'Brien relaxes when it's off and he asks why they're here. Winston is nervous at first to admit it, but he fully discloses his and Julia's stance against the party and their desire to join the Brotherhood. O'Brien confirms that the Brotherhood exists and pulls out an incredibly rare wine to make a toast to Emmanuel Goldstein. O'Brien tells them that they're stupid for being together, that it's dangerous, but he decides to make plans with them for how they're going to leave his house discreetly and he starts to question Winston's commitment against the party. And he asks him about his willingness to die for the Brotherhood, to kill for the Brotherhood, to sabotage, to betray, and other destructive acts. But when he asks if he and Julia would betray each other or be apart, they quickly refuse. They say they could never be permanently separated. And O'Brien hesitates, but he accepts this provision. So Winston and Julia are impressed by O'Brien's commanding presence as he outlines the procedure of what to do if they're captured. He assures them that they will eventually be caught and they will confess and the Brotherhood will not be able to help them. But Winston and Julia, when they're caught, they won't be able to implicate more than a handful of people because the Brotherhood is very good about keeping their people unknown. They have no signals between them and Winston and Julia will only know of one or two people outside themselves that are even in the Brotherhood. O'Brien says that by the time they get caught, they won't even be able to betray himself because he'll be dead by then or he'll have a different face because people in the Brotherhood change their faces a lot so that they can't be detected. It says on 180, you will get used to living without results and without hope. You will work for a while you will be caught, you will confess, and then you will die. Those are the only results that you will ever see. There is no possibility that any perceptible change will happen in your own lifetime. We are the dead. Our only true life is in the future. So O'Brien explains that the Brotherhood is very secretive. Members often can't recognize or communicate with each other. Instead, they are bonded by the idea of a better future. So it's time to go. They have one more glass of wine. O'Brien asks if Winston and Julia have a hiding spot. Winston tells him about the spare room in Mr. Charrington's shop. O'Brien promises that he will pass the book on to Winston. So remember the book is written by Emmanuel Goldstein. It's a book against the party. No one's ever seen it except if you're in the Brotherhood, supposedly. O'Brien tells Winston that he will get the book to him in an elaborate briefcase swap. 
And as Winston is about to leave, O'Brien tells him that they will meet again. And Winston finishes his sentence saying, in the place with no darkness. And O'Brien doesn't appear surprised by this. And Winston takes that to mean that he knows about that place or knows that he said that to him in a dream, whatever. He just doesn't seem shocked by it. And before he leaves, Winston asks O'Brien if he remembers a rhyme from before the revolution that he forgot, the one about the churches that the store owner couldn't finish. O'Brien says the whole rhyme word for word. And as they depart, O'Brien turns the telescreen back on and continues working for the party. Chapter 9. Winston is exhausted from working 90 hours and 6 days in the 6 days following hate week and he walks through the streets to their hiding spot and he has the book in his hands. So during hate week, the entire party exhausted themselves on hysteria against Eurasia, the country that they are at war with. But in the middle of the week, Oceania announced that they are actually at war with East Asia and Eurasia was an ally, had always been an ally. The ceremony in which the party discovered that they were misled on who Oceania was warring with was used as proof that Goldstein sabotaged their preparations for hate week and this induced more hatred towards him. The posters at the ceremony were all wrong because the announcement of who they were at war with came during it. So this was obviously Goldstein's doing. And nobody questioned it. It was during a speech about how bad Eurasia was that the announcement came and the person giving the speech switched to East Asia in an instant. And then it was basically nothing except an uproar that Goldstein had sabotaged them. And everyone just believed it. On page 184, it says, there was, of course, no admission that any change had taken place. Merely, it had become known with extreme suddenness and everywhere at once that East Asia and not Eurasia was the enemy. And as Winston is in the square, he sees the moment that it happened. It was at night, and the square was packed with several thousand people. And as this man is giving a speech, it says he was given a slip of paper and he unrolled it and read it without pausing in his speech. Nothing altered in his voice or manner or in the content of what he was saying, but suddenly the names were different. Without words said, a wave of understanding rippled through the crowd. Oceania was at war with East Asia. The next moment, there was a tremendous commotion. The banders and the posters in the square were wrong. Everything was wrong. It was Goldstein. He had sabotaged them. And after this burst the hate continued exactly as before except that the target had been changed so now winston is in his secret hiding place he's waiting for julia and he opens the book and begins to read the book is called the theory and practice of oligarchical collectivism by emmanuel goldstein the first chapter is called ignorance is strength now the majority of this chapter is sections from this book and it's a lot of information and it gets confusing and it gets old and in fact a lot of people who read 1984 kind of skip these sections but obviously we're not going to do that we're going to go through them briefly so the book outlines how since the beginning of human history there has been class wars 
and that the current three superstates of the world, which include Oceania, East Asia, and Eurasia, came out of necessity of survival after an early 20th century filled with endless war. War had advanced, war has advanced from vast skirmishes to remote bombings and assassinations, and quote, war hysteria is often self-committed by nations and looked on as helpful to the national cause. So the three superstates fight for a healthy, densely populated area that lies in their borders. This area is valuable for lower class people, which can be used for cheap labor and for its valuable raw materials. So the book continues describing how the goal for each superstate is to use up all their resources without giving any more to the common people. Giving people a higher standard of living would give them more individual power and take away from their dependency on the government. On 189, it says, But it was also clear that an all-around increase in wealth threatened the destruction, indeed in some sense, it was the destruction, of a hierarchical society. In the long run, hierarchical society was only possible on the basis of poverty and ignorance. So the book says countries must be constantly militarized to retain power. War is used to destroy surplus resources, making sure no one can innovate or be intelligent. Even the inner party, despite being elite, have comparable lower standards than the average human in pre-revolutionary capitalism. Since science requires ingenuity, the party has eliminated all facets of life except for improving war machines or to eradicate individual thought from everyone. The book unveils that despite the party's claims to its construction, the atomic bomb was made for the revolution and used against Russia, Europe, and North America. No one uses the atomic bomb anymore, but any serious attack from an opposing superstate will trigger all-out nuclear warfare. Complete world domination is impossible, the book says, because it would require annihilation of everyone else or complete assimilation. Currently, war does the opposite of what it did pre-revolution. It never ends and it never resolves. On 198, it says, Since each of the superstates is unconquerable, each is, in effect, a separate universe within which almost any perversion of thought can be safely practiced. They can twist reality into whatever shape they choose. In effect, the war between superstates is a charade and the real war is against individuality. On 198, again, it says the two aims of the party are to conquer the whole surface of the earth and to extinguish once and for all the possibility of independent thought. So Winston stops reading here and realizes that the book didn't tell him anything he didn't already know. And it says exactly what he would have said if he had been the one that had written it. So for a brief moment, the narration returns to Winston and Julia. Julia comes into the room. She is indifferent to the book. She doesn't really care. She's more interested in having coffee and sleeping with Winston. And after some time in bed, Julia asks Winston to read the book to her. So Winston keeps reading. The book states that there has been three social classes in civilization since the beginning of time, the high, the middle, and the low. The higher in power until the middle and low unite to overthrow the high. The object in life is to be in the high class and stay there. When the middle class struggles for power, they claim they are fighting for universal equality. 
It says on 202, The middle, so long as it was struggling for power, had always made use of such terms as freedom, justice, and fraternity. Socialism is a middle-class idea from the 1800s, but in the 1900s, socialism stopped preaching equality and reinvented itself as being worthy of becoming the new high class. The new doctrine would allow them permanent status as high class. So in the early 1900s, wealth distribution began to even out and class rankings began to disappear. To truly achieve power in the 20th century, leaders needed a complete revolutionary overhaul of the political system and to violently protect themselves, not from other states, but from the insurgents within the state. On 205, it says, by comparison with that of today, all the tyrannies of the past were half-hearted and inefficient. Okay, so in order to maintain power, private property and thought was made property of the party, and the high, middle, low class system was reintroduced. This lack of privacy that they have perpetuates power to the party indefinitely. So, the book continues saying that to further protect from the revolution, the party attributes all success, all accomplishments, and knowledge to Big Brother. He is the imaginary leader of Oceana. Oceana's party system is not based on hereditary or ethnic bases. Rather, at age 16, every child is inspected on their loyalty to Oceana's functioning doctrines, except obviously for the proles. All the proles remain proles for life. The proles are allowed to do as they please because they have no knowledge of their oppression. Within the party itself, there is no crime or insurrection, because the party undergoes constant purges, arrests, imprisonments, and vaporizations to obviously get rid of potential insurgents, people who have committed thought crime. So from a young age, children are taught crime stop, which is a newspeak word for the notion that anyone who thinks or acts against the party must be el eliminated immediately. The past obviously must be altered so that the party members can be satisfied with whatever the party wants them to think. Memories without doublethink create distrust and an eventual insurrection. Doublethink allows party members to engage with the reality that they want to be construed without any initial resistance. They are conscious that they are unconscious. So by vilifying the past, and the socialist ideas which were born out of the past, the party can protect many members from any initial thought crime. Winston stops reading. He realizes that Julia has fallen asleep and probably been asleep for a while. And he thinks about what he's read so far, but he still hasn't figured out the why of the party. He knows how, he just doesn't understand why. Okay, chapter 10. Julia and Winston wake up and they hear a woman, Prol, singing outside of their window. He starts thinking about what he read in the book and how the Proles have all the power to cause insurrection. Winston thinks about the future and he and Julia say to each other, we are the dead. And then someone they can't see says, you are the dead. They look around panicked and they realize that there's a telescreen hiding behind a photo on the wall. So they've finally been caught. A bunch of men await to detain them outside. They're both terrified. And they come into the room and they start beating Julia. Then they beat Winston. And Winston sees Mr. Charrington enter the room, the antique shop owner. But his appearance has completely changed. 
And Winston realizes that for the first time, he is knowingly looking at a member of the Thought Police. And they have been betrayed. Okay, this is part three, the last part of the book, chapter one. Winston wakes up, uncertain of the time or the place. He's starving. He doesn't know where he is. He's being watched by a telescreen, which shouts at him anytime he moves. He is in a crowded prison cell with a bunch of other people. Some of them are political prisoners, some common criminals. Common criminals are obviously given more leniency than political prisoners. And he hears the prisoners talking about labor camps, how common criminals are usually sent to labor camps and then are appointed aristocratic positions and political prisoners do the dirty work. Winston's hunger is unbearable. It's basically all he thinks about, but when he's not thinking about his hunger, he thinks about the hope that O'Brien may be able to smuggle a razor blade in so he can kill himself. Because when O'Brien first met with Winston, he told him if the Brotherhood was at all able to help him, they would have someone smuggle in a razor blade for him when he was caught. But it was unlikely. Another prisoner enters, and Winston knows him. It's Ampleforth, and he has been arrested because he left the word God in a poem that he was editing for the party. A guard comes in after a while and takes Ampleforth to the mysterious room, room 101, and no one knows what's in that room unless they've already been there, but it's clearly terrifying. A little later, Another person that Winston knows comes in to the prison. It's Parsons, his neighbor with the evil children. Remember, Parsons is the one who Winston thought would never have a, a thought against the party because he's not smart enough. Parsons is distraught. He has been found guilty of thought crime. Apparently, his daughter listened to him through the keyhole and heard him denounce Big Brother. He said over and over again, down with Big Brother. Parsons, though, is glad that he was arrested. He's glad they caught him before his betrayal got any worse. Winston is very shocked by this because, again, he didn't think that Parsons would ever be able to defy the party. He didn't think he was intelligent enough to even think an ill thought against the party. Eventually, Parsons is also taken away. And he is replaced by a man who is clearly dying of starvation. Winston offers, tries to offer him a breadcrumb. And immediately the starving man is beaten by the guards and taken away to room 101, which he is terrified of and he protests against going. He begs them not to take him to room 101. He'll, he says he'll do anything to not go there. So... Winston is obviously terrified. At some point, he is finally alone in the cell, and after a long time, he sees O'Brien enter, and O'Brien is accompanied by a guard. At first, Winston thinks O'Brien was caught as well, but O'Brien says, no, you know who I am, and Winston finally realizes that he knew all along that O'Brien was a part of the thought police, but he didn't want to admit it to himself. The guard hits Winston in the elbow with a bat, and Winston thinks about how physical pain is the worst thing in the world, and that you cannot wish anything except for the pain to stop. Chapter 2. Winston is in an empty room next to a man in a lab coat holding a syringe. 
He has been tortured in every way possible and forced to confess to baseless crimes. He's been beaten. He's been put through a lot of physical pain. But he says worse than the physical pain was the constant questions. On 249, it says, Their real weapon was the merciless questioning that went on and on hour after hour, tripping him up, laying traps for him, twisting everything that he said, convicting him at every step of life and self-contradiction, until he began weeping as much from shame as from nervous fatigue. And it says it was easier for him to confess everything and implicate everybody. Besides, in a way, it was all true. It was true that he had been an enemy to the party, and in the eyes of the party, there was no distinction between the thought and the deed. So Winston is going through a lot, and he begins seeing hallucinations of Julia, of Mr. Charrington, of O'Brien. They're always laughing at him. Winston is taken and strapped to a chair in a random room, and O'Brien comes to the room, which to Winston fulfills the prophecy that he heard that was, we shall meet in the place where there is no darkness. O'Brien has control of everything that has happened to Winston in prison. He has been the voice behind the pain. O'Brien says to Winston, don't you worry, Winston, you are in my keeping. For seven years, I have watched over you. Now the turning point has come. I shall save you. I shall make you perfect. So whenever O'Brien pleases, he pulls a lever, which causes Winston to feel intense pain. He begins manipulating Winston into believing that what Winston believes to be truth is in fact hallucination and lies. Winston resists O'Brien's assertions that the past is not real, and O'Brien seems to care deeply that Winston disavows his personal feelings. It says on 249, reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else, not in the individual mind, which can make mistakes, and in any case soon perishes, only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. O'Brien asks Winston if the party had said 2 plus 2 equals 5, what would the correct answer be? So clearly he's read Winston's diary. Winston says that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and O'Brien pulls the lever, which makes Winston feel a lot of pain. And after multiple attempts, Winston finally says anything in order to stop the pain. So he says 2 plus 2 equals 5. He passes out from the pain, and when he wakes up, O'Brien continues to shock him. He holds up four fingers and says, how many fingers do you see? And, and he does this until Winston says that he sees five fingers. He wants to see five fingers because he wants the pain to stop. O'Brien explains to him the psychology of what they're doing to him. He says to Winston that they are not going to kill him, that they are going to do everything possible to convert Winston and make him want to join the party again. He says on 255, we do not destroy the heretic because he resists us. So long as he resists us, we never destroy him. We convert him. We capture his inner mind. We reshape him. So Winston is a flaw in this pattern and he must be corrected. And O'Brien says, when you finally surrender to us, it must be of your own free will. And he explains to him that the problem with the past leadership and past governments was that they punished people, you know, heretics, betrayers, defiers of the government. They just immediately executed them. Now, this party has realized that they can't do that because if they kill 
a person who defies the party. Everyone in the party sees this person die against the party. And the person who defied them dies knowing that he defied the party. So instead, they convert these people to become loyal to the party. And when they have completely converted them to believing everything the party says and loving Big Brother, that's when they kill them. So they make their brains perfect. And when they are true disciples of the party, they execute them. It says, We bring him over to our side, not in appearance, but genuinely heart and soul. We make him one of ourselves before we kill him. And in this way, the loyal people to the party and the secret defiers see the traitors as true party loyalists when they die. They don't die knowing that they defied the party. They don't get that satisfaction. So O'Brien's sincerity in his beliefs captivates Winston to the point that he begins to wonder if he is the insane one. Once again, he submits Winston to pain. This time it's so powerful that Winston forgets everything. He agrees to everything O'Brien asks him, including if 2 plus 2 equals 5. But Winston has not completely converted in his brain. And at this time, O'Brien says Winston can ask him any questions. He asks about Julia. O'Brien says she betrayed him and resumed party loyalty. Winston asks if Big Brother exists as he, Winston, exists. O'Brien says, you do not exist. Winston asks about the Brotherhood. O'Brien denies him any information. And during all of this, Winston is being injected with an unknown fluid by some other man. And he finally asks what is in room 101. And O'Brien tells him he already knows. Chapter 3. Winston is beginning what O'Brien calls stage 3 of reintegration, which is understanding. And at this point, his main purpose is to avoid pain. So he's basically like, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to do everything O'Brien wants because I don't want to feel pain anymore. Okay, O'Brien reveals to Winston that he wrote the Goldstein book and that the ideals in it are just to stir complete rebellion and just deny it outright. O'Brien asks Winston why the party exists. At this moment, Winston realizes his own weakness and the lunacy in O'Brien. Anytime he says something, O'Brien shocks him. On 263, it says, The party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power. And then he says, One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish a dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now do you begin to understand? So O'Brien continues saying that the only freedom is giving up your identity and entering the party, as it has complete control. So at this notion, Winston ferociously argues with O'Brien, citing how the party had no control over gravity, fossils, the other superstates, science, and all of these other truths. And O'Brien says, did you forget about doublethink? Basically, he's saying truth doesn't matter as long as no one believes it. And Winston is crushed because he knows both him and O'Brien are right. So O'Brien goes into another ideological monologue saying that the party's object is to force everyone to suffer to the point of obedience. If you want to picture the future, imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. Winston argues, 
obviously, that such a world could not exist because it would disintegrate. He feels that love is stronger than hate. O'Brien laughs at this, calls him weak, but Winston still holds on to this. And O'Brien is obviously upset. O'Brien releases Winston from the table and tells him to go look at himself in the mirror. Winston is scared of what he sees. He's like a grayish color. He is very skinny. He resembles more of a skeleton than a human. And O'Brien insults his physical state, pointing out his awful smell, his missing teeth, his wispy hair. And Winston breaks down and cries at what he has become. But he takes comfort in the fact that he has yet to betray Julia. He still loves her. And O'Brien agrees with this. And once again, Winston sees him as a comforting, sensible man. And he asks how much longer until they kill him. And O'Brien tells him it could be a long time. Winston is a difficult case, but they will kill him in the end. Chapter 4. Winston is improving in health. He is now being given three meals a day. They are healthy and tasteful. And he is slowly recovering from physical torture. Eventually, he begins to exercise. He gets stronger. And they even give him a pencil and paper to write. And he begins to accept everything that the party said, saying he relented to them long before he realized. It says he accepted everything. The past was alterable. The past never had been altered. Oceania was at war with East Asia. Oceania had always been at war with East Asia. So he accepts the reality that he accepts that reality is what he perceives and denounces all laws and truths, replacing them with obvious lies that the party said were true. He finds himself in a daydream, thinking about the open country, and his thoughts wander to Julia, and he suddenly screams out her name, and he instantly knows that he will pay for it, and he wonders how many years he just added to his sentence. So despite converting himself to party thought, he continues to expect that they will shoot him or continue to torture him, his subconscious continues to rebel, thinking of his mother and Julia, but in order to remain safe, he decides to cover his subconscious as much as possible. It says on 281, if you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. And he secretly plans, one day they will come to shoot him and he'll have maybe a 10 second warning before it happens. And it says on 291, in that time, the world inside him could turn over. And then suddenly, without a word uttered, without a check in his step, without the changing of a line in his face, suddenly the camouflage would be down, and bang, would go the batteries of his hatred. The heretical thought would be unpunished, unrepented, out of their reach forever. They would have blown a hole in their own perfection. To die hating them, that was freedom. So, he's going to do his best to hide his subconscious get through this and then one day when he dies at that last second he will have known that he died defying the party o'brien comes in o'brien comes in and tells him that winston is very close to full conversion but his emotions still betray him and he tells him that it's finally time to go to room 101 chapter 5 so deep underneath the prison is room 101 o'brien says that room 101 is where they expose people to their worst fears in Winston's case, this is rats. Remember, he freaked out when he saw that rat in their room. So O'Brien has a cage full of large mature rats and 
plans to release them on Winston, who is obviously completely terrified. And he slowly continues to bring the cage closer and closer to Winston's face. Winston is completely helpless. He's panicking. And finally, at the last second, he screams for Julia to be eaten by rats rather than him. And this satisfies O'Brien. He closes the cage and puts it away. So he finally betrayed Julia. Chapter 6. Winston is out of prison. He is at the Chestnut Tree Cafe drinking gin. Remember, this is the cafe where a lot of people go who have previously defied the party. Uh, Questionable people, I guess. He is watching the telescreen. The telescreen is talking about how Oceana is in serious danger of war between the super states, but he's largely indifferent to this. He is playing chess with himself, though he imagines he's playing against Big Brother. He thinks about the news that Oceana may start losing the war and that the party may be destroyed. He tries to look through his feelings, but he can't decide how he feels. He knows that when he betrayed Julia, that he had lost and that the party had won. And he remembers a time in the recent past after they were both out of prison, they ran into each other in public. They sat next to each other at a park. They talked and they both confessed to betraying each other and that they were embarrassed and then they haven't seen each other since. He thinks about Room 101. His dread from what happened in Room Room 101 has caused him to become an alcoholic again. He often can't get out of bed without an immediate drink. He has a flashback to when he was a child. It was a happy memory where he's playing a dice game with his mother, but he believes that the memory is probably fake. And suddenly the telescreen says that Oceana troops rallied and defeated the other superstates in a decisive battle. And he's thrilled. He cheers with everyone else. The waiter comes to fill his bottle of gin again, and he comes to the conclusion that all the feelings he had before were wrong and that he in fact loved Big Brother. And he daydreams about the day that they put a bullet in his brain. He knows they're still going to kill him, and he can't wait for that day. It says on the last page, But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. And that's the end. So he didn't get his satisfying ending. He actually was converted to the party, and he loved Big Brother. Okay, I'm going to quickly go through themes. So the first one is truth versus reality. So much of the book concerns the conflict between truth and believing in something that is not true. The implications of what it means to be true are tested a lot throughout the book. For example, O'Brien and Winston argue persistently over whether 2 plus 2 equals 5. O'Brien wants to prove that 2 plus 2 can be anything as long as it fulfills the party's needs. Another example is doublethink, which is central to the book's message and the success of the party. Doublethink offers one way of simultaneously accepting and rejecting truth and being content with it. So in the world of 1984, truth and reality are mutually exclusive. The party goes to great lengths to change the past because they see its function solely to strengthen the present. Changing the past fortified reality but negates truth. So this is censorship 
and the party censors basically everything from the information on telescreens to articles, books, the past, people, etc. Altering truth to perceive a certain reality and disposing of other truths helps the party be more efficient, which is another one of its goals, and ultimately the political system in 1984 is so fearsome and powerful because they have the power to alter truth and to not live by its principles. However, this also detracts from life itself. Okay, the second theme I'm going to talk about is nationalism. 1984 kind of reads as a very long brochure on the dangers of nationalism. The Oceania superstate evolved from discovering power within nationalism. So when someone will do anything for their country, the amount of what they are capable of doing also increases. For example, in 1984, the amount of work, either voluntary or mandatory, was at its greatest amount in preparation for hate week. And also O'Brien expresses how all praise, honor, and achievements are attributed to Big Brother, even though Big Brother is not a single person, but the apex ideal of humanity. So there is no individualism. The close association between nationalism and violence suggests that George Orwell believes there are immensely negative implications to complete nationalism. Nationalism goes too far, and it can only cause harm to other people. For example, when O'Brien describes the why behind the party's violent actions towards other thought processes, it says, The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. So Winston's entire struggle surrounds detracting from the nationalist identity while staying alive. The danger of nationalism in 1984 is that there is no middle ground. Everything that does not contribute to the nation to the nation must be eliminated. So the last theme I'm going to talk about is freedom of choice. Winston detests that people ultimately do not have a choice as members of the party. He is very jealous of the proles because they are not constantly watched and under surveillance. They can basically do whatever they want. Despite rebelling against the party, Winston consistently says that he is already dead. And he does not believe that his consequences will truly matter in the end. That being said, he still feels great grief when he finally betrays Julia. It was the one thing he felt like he had control over. The Ministry of Truth reveals that they never kill thought criminals. Instead, they reinvent them to think the way they want them to think. They take away their freedom of choice, their freedom of thought, and then they kill them. Okay, so that's the end. 1984. It's kind of, I mean, it's it's amazing. I love this book, but it's not a happy ending for sure. Go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify so that you get updates when new episodes are aired. And if you didn't already, go ahead and leave me a review on whatever platform you listen on. And yeah, see you guys next time.